G'day everyone and a very warm welcome back. Sorry I've been away for a bit, but we're back in business and hoping to once again provide you with some good hockey content for your commute, doing the dishes, falling asleep to, or wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing. My name's Tom Craig and this is The Help Side. We're back showcasing the stories of some of the biggest names in hockey and we're stoked that you're here to enjoy the ride with us. Over the next little while, we're going to be sprinkling in some special Olympic recap episodes with familiar guests who we've spoken to before to hear about the highs and lows of their Tokyo 2020 Olympic experience while it's still fresh in their memory. We do this to hopefully bring you an insight into what it's really like to be competing at the pinnacle of hockey and how the experience is a little bit different for everyone. Today's episode is the epilogue of a story we've heard before way back in episode 20 with Tom Wigan. And if you missed that, I recommend heading back and listening to it because this will make a bit more sense. Despite losing the gold medal match to Belgium in the shootout, TJ's Olympic campaign was a memorable one, finishing with an impressive six goals and as the only non-drag flicker in the top five goal scorers for the tournament. In this short episode, you'll hear about the lead-in to the tournament, the key to his goal-scoring success and what's next for the Kookaburra striker. This is Tom Wickham and the help side. Enjoy. Tom Wickham, it's been a while since I saw you via Zoom um, and like everyone else, I'm really interested to catch up and, and hear where you're at. But in between, we last spoke, lots going on for you. First and foremost, perhaps is an Olympic silver medal and we'll get to that. But um, firstly, how are you? Hey, Tommy. Good to be here. Um, must have done something right because I'm back again. Um, I'm going well, mate. Enjoying a bit of downtime. Um, yeah, it's been, it actually hasn't felt like much downtime, to be honest. It's been pretty flat out catching up with people and, um, you know, doing, doing all the things you do when you first come back from a tour is always pretty rapid. So it's just starting to slow down a bit now, which is nice. Beautiful. Now, the, uh, the purpose of this one is to, we had a good solid chat last year and anyone who didn't hear that um, episode, go back and look, there's gems everywhere. But um, since then, as I said, you've been to the Olympics and um, you spoke a lot last time about your mission. And um, I think it wouldn't be too far to say that this is a, a big part of that mission was to go to the Olympics and play well and play well as a team. Um, so I'm interested to hear how that played out. But firstly, it was a pretty disrupted year, the Olympic year. I know last time we spoke about the whole Olympic postponement in general, but but this year um, the Olympics did happen and we did have six months leading up to it with um, pretty uncertain circumstances. So can you just tell us a little bit about that and, and how that might have impacted the Olympics or how you kept a, a positive mind frame throughout that? Yeah, nice. Good question. Um, I think the first one to, to nail it is how do I keep a positive mind frame? Um, <clears throat> I get to play hockey for a living. I don't really have much to complain about. There's no point complaining. Um, you know, there's worse things in life. So keep that perspective always. Um, it was, it was an interesting build up. Like I think it was an extra, it was a, a year longer than what, what it was originally planned out to be. Right. So, um, you know, everything got put on the back burners and we slowly started to build. And then when we all joined back together in January, we, kind of hit the ground running and we slowly built up and, um, you know, there was a lot of chat around. We were traveling, we weren't traveling. Now we're traveling again. Now we've got to be fluid with kind of what we're doing. And that was changing constantly, you know, day by day, week by week, we'd, we'd get told one thing and it would change again with restrictions around the world and also how 
we were able to, you know, make sure that we were still training and not get caught in lockdown. So um, we were fortunate enough, maybe, I think it was maybe four weeks, a month before flying out to Tokyo, we, we were fortunate enough to fly out to um, New Zealand and play our first games in over a year. We got to play four games there, then we played two games in Perth, they flew over to us. So we got to play six games against um, New Zealand, which um, was obviously a massive buzz for everyone. First first international games for, for ages. So I think it almost we almost, in some regards, forgot about the Olympics for a little second there and just was so excited around. It was almost like you were debuting again. So when we travelled and we could finally get away and, you know, spend time with each other and live in each other's pockets and feel like that, what that was like again, um, there was a lot of excitement around that. But apart from that, it was, you know, the, the standard disruptions, but we just kept pushing through. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it was about getting to the Olympics and performing. So, yeah. And uh, I'm not sure if many people know, but um, I think few people's journey to a gold medal match would have been as much of a roller coaster ride as yours because um, in the lead up to the Olympics, originally you actually missed selection um, and a lot happened after that. But can you just tell us a little bit about those few weeks leading into selection and that initial kind of disappointment and then, I don't know, mate, take us through that journey because that's, that's wild. Yeah, well, I think firstly, Obviously, the roller coaster kept going. It was almost like a crazy finish to it. <laughs> but um, I think it almost, if it was going to happen, it almost had to happen to me, I think. Like, obviously, <laughs> curvy career that I've had, it almost had to have some type of crazy, crazy climax to it. So, you know, it was what it was. It wasn't necessarily the, the best thing to go through, but, you know, it's a great lesson for me. But, um, yeah, obviously forever there's only ever been 16 selected that's a team of 16 you take away two reserves so you 17 18 and an, and an extra goalkeeper um and you know leading up to you know a couple of weeks out you know the rules changed for for a lot of the sports in the olympics where they could bring those reserves in so essentially the myself and josh belts came in and it, was, it essentially became instead of a 16 man team an 18 man squad but game by game, you had to, you could only still pick the 16. So um, that was that. But previously to that, um, I mean, I've, I've been saying this for a few years. I remember saying this on the last book list, but, you know, I've really figured out who I am in this team and what I need to be. And so um, my form over the last few years is, hasn't changed much. I've consistently been what I believe one of our best strikers and one of our best performers. We obviously go through little patches here and there um, but I've figured out how to not stay in those slumps and um, look leading into selection I was confident but not overconfident obviously um, it's a subjective thing that you have to go through in a team sport especially one that's as fluid as hockey um, but I was I was confident I thought I'd done what I needed to do and um, yeah I still believe to this day that I was in that team before anything else played out um, you know and that was pretty much my message all the way through. Um, but once that initial non-selection came, um, I, I pretty quickly just turned to some of the other boys that didn't get selected. Like I, I, I more or less was a sounding board for them. Like again, as disappointed I was inside, probably used my close friends and family to, to talk about that and probably was more a sounding board for them. And there was two ways I could have went. I could have, chucked a tantrum and 
started to undo all the, the great work and hard work that my teammates had done, or I could just put my head down, bum up, and potentially, you know, if something happened to someone else, that I would I would be able to step in and, and take that spot. Now that's obviously the second option. You don't you don't want you'd like to be picked in the 16 straight away. So to say I didn't have a chip on my shoulder, even still, once <laughs> I found out I was now going to play, I absolutely did. I think that's when I play my best hockey. So it wasn't necessarily a bad thing for me to have that chip. And yeah, once I once I found out that I was then going to play after kind of all, all that, you know, the the weeks leading into it, I still, yeah, I was pretty much just like fuck it, like you should have picked me, you didn't, and now I'm going to fucking prove everyone why you should have. So, um, yeah. I didn't change the way I played. I didn't try to force it. I didn't try to do any more than what I had been for the last two years. I knew in myself and that I'd been around hockey long enough that like what I was doing was enough. And once I was able to step on the world stage again and show people that, that it was going to do its talking. So I didn't need to force it. I felt really comfortable, really relaxed through every game we played. I think that was just because I had ultimate confidence in who I now become in, in this team. Yeah, that's brilliant. We speak a lot about having to play your best when your best is required and there's no bigger stage than, than the Olympics. And I think I can confidently say that that was the best tournament you've played for Australia and what a time to do it. Um, you ended up scoring, what, five goals or including one in the six goals, he says. Six goals, <laughs> six goals including right. one in the gold medal match. Um, but you started hot as well. And, and you actually, you played most games, every game, because it was a rotation, but you played... Uh, I played six, oh, seven. Um, I, I sat out the um, the Indian game where the boys turned it on and decided to have a field day. So it would have been <laughs> nice to play that one. <laughs> True, could have been but, a few um, more. Um, but that's but, okay. But you started you started hot, and um, like I'm interested. Once you're in kind of a goal scoring mood, and I think um, a lot of strikers, young strikers around the world, would be interested to hear this. How do you kind of sustain um, that momentum and and keep keep putting goals in the in the back of the net. Yeah, um, I think it like like I for me, I pride myself on knowing the game, and I see the game. I think I'm steps ahead. And as a striker, I think if you can be ahead of um, you know your midfield and your your um, your defence or the people that are on the ball, if you can be ahead of kind of what their thought process is, then you're going to probably more often than not find yourself in positions to score or set opportunities up. And so for me, uh, I, I think I do that well. I think it's one of my strengths is finding myself in how, how I get positions or how I can manipulate with um, subtle movements, little little kind of bumps and rolls and stepping in front of people and just little things that I think I can naturally feel. So that's an instinctive thing I think I've built over the years. But, um, yeah, that's that's I think why I was running hot, but I, I just know I'm good goal scoring goals. <laughs> I'm a good, I'm a, I'm a good goal scorer, and I, I kind of always have been, and I've always had that instinct. Um, yeah, like I look back through whether it's state hockey, club hockey, like all through my career, I've always constantly been in the the in and around top goal scorers, whether it's for my team or competition. So um, I'm not a drag flicker. I rely on scoring goals or creating opportunities for my teammates and. Um, 
you know, there's that side of it. But then I just think I'm fucking competitive and I'm hungry and I just <laughs> love it. So, yeah. I mean, for, for people who watch the Olympics, I think all your goals were were close to the net. We're just kind of switching on where everyone else, except one, sorry. Every, everyone was a one-touch goal, yeah. Everyone was a one-touch goal. I mean, that's yeah, that's concentrating and being in the right spot. So <laughs> that's good evidence. Um, and the and the conditions as well, it was it was hot in, in Tokyo. Did you find yourself just um, like able to, to switch on when, when others didn't or do you reckon that, that paid, a, paid a price on your defenders? Um, it was hot. Yeah. The day games were rapid, like suppressive, like that feeling of like, mm. just feel like your head's cooking. Um, but I kind of like it. Like I, I love that. Like it's good. <laughs> um, I think if you embrace it and you kind of just get to work and know you're going to keep pushing, I think there's going to be a moment where someone buckles and as long as it's not you, you're probably going to come out on top. So it was hard when people didn't want to do the running, I would try and ask the question of them or um, I would do it anyway. I know there was times where I was absolutely spent and I thought I was going to pass out, but it was just like one more effort because it's, you know, that's what you don't get to the big games if you're not willing to go there. So mm. it was hard. It was really hard. Night times were definitely easier. Um, we also play a style of hockey that does demand that of us. And I think we were... You know, we, we, we pride ourselves on being one of the first teams there. And I do think we were the first team there. Um, we were able to overrun teams often. Um, but, I mean, in the big games, when it got to the quarters, the semi and the final, I just remember picking on, like, every game. Like, I was playing centre striker often. I, if, if I was starting, I'd start there. And I just remember, like, picking someone out and I'd just go up to them and bump them or hit them or just start niggling or saying words. I don't even know the bloke, but I was just like mentally like, I'm going to play this game with you and see how you like it. And uh, yeah, often I got out on top of it. Like people didn't like it and it put them off and I was in it and I felt good about it. So I was just there to go to work really. Yeah. Clock yeah. in. Awesome. Um, and there were no crowds obviously in, uh, in Tokyo. So no friends and family um, other than the the friends you had with you we're in the same colors but um the buzz from back home was that a distraction at all because i can imagine you know your phone's constantly belling people want to congratulate you um wish you all the best and just kind of generally catch up how did you manage that and was it a distraction yeah good question i think it, it can um but for me what i would do after each game on the bus on the way home that was when i kind of made an effort to just speak to like send a message to everyone even if it was just thumbs up thanks mate whatever it was love you this or whatever it was just like make the effort then and there for the you know in that instance where you're kind of not doing anything everything's fresh you can respond so within the first hour and a half i like made sure i just got all those messages out of the way straight away so then by the time you know it's time to the next morning it was like nothing was it was i wasn't receiving messages because i just tried to get them all out of the way then and there and I found that really worked for me because you still um, you still got that love from home and we definitely felt it like it was amazing, especially for not having a crowd. Um, and you still showed respect to those people that are following your, your career and your journey. Um, but it never became a distraction because I wasn't worried about it. You know, get it out of the way when there's nothing going on fresh after the game and it's done and dusted. So that was kind of my approach, just get on, get it done, speak to people, send them love and move on 
um, no crowds. Um, I think I spoke spoke about this on the podcast or something else not long ago around the crowds and often the crowds they um they kind of ebb and flow with the game. So if you're up, normally you're not really too focused on the crowd. So when we're scoring, like I wasn't focused on too much apart from scoring. I just like I'm in that moment and I love it and you can probably tell that. So in that moment, not really. Um, but I reckon opening game versus Japan in Japan, like that would have been a moment that you could look back on and with a, like that would have been electric. It's just like playing in India versus India, you know. So you miss those moments, but all in all, I don't know. It, it kind of still felt like we had this presence and there was something there. So it was, it was a weird, weird one, yeah, but not too, didn't buy into it too much. Yeah, awesome. And people also speak about the other distraction that's at the Olympics, which is the village, um, slightly different looking village to what we normally hear about, but did that play a part as well? I don't think so. I think because we were, like, if one of us went down with something, we were all done. And there was clearly this in the background fear that, you know, there was COVID and something might happen or whatever. So everyone was really diligent. And I think almost having a team of people there kind of kept everyone in check. We didn't really have to talk about it or say, like, you know, wash your hands or put a mask on. It was just everyone did it. And by having a team of people there, it was kind of like your responsibility. If one went down, we're pretty much all buggered. There goes your Olympic dream. So it wasn't a hard thing to do. Like, I mean, the amount of hand sanitizer I went through, I'm <laughs> like, unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't wasn't affected too much. We kept that distance. We, we ate in the food hall. We got out of there. There was, you know, we had a little um, nutrition hub, whatever we called it, pantry, athlete pantry in the Aussie building which we could go to so we could avoid you know going there and breakfasts and things like that so um i think we were probably you know having a team around us if anything made it probably easier because we were accountable to something and uh i've got to ask back to the to the performance and the silver medal itself um you've had a bit of time to reflect on the on the tournament i know you would have done that um and in particular the gold medal match but is there anything putting on our captain hindsight hat is there anything that you'd you'd have thought that or you'd wish that um, we'd done differently or or anything like that? Where did where do you think we went wrong or everything is tip-top, just unlucky? Fine margins, shootout, silver medal, pretty close. Yeah, I think, for, like, firstly, I've obviously got mixed emotions around all of it. People, when they ask you, and I've, you've been, I've been asked this question nonstop since the final, um, mixed emotions and... I say that because often when you get answered a question or, you know, as an athlete, people want a black and white answer. It's not black and white. It's so much more than that. And for me, I say mixed emotions because it's not, we didn't fail, but we didn't succeed. Um, We were there to win a gold medal, but before that we were there to get to the quarterfinals. And after that, we were there to win the semi. And then after that, we were there to play in the final. At the end of the day, you, you can never say that playing in the biggest game, there's only two teams that make it, is a failure. However, I play to win. I want a goal and I'm not happy with the silver. I don't really like putting it on. Like, there's the amount of photos I've had and I've just held it instead of putting it on. Like, and that's me. And a lot of people have been saying to me, like, oh, you shouldn't be so hard on yourself and um, et cetera, along those lines. But for me, it's like that's what makes me me and that's what makes me score goals and compete and be a mongrel. So... 
Um, if I wasn't me and if I was satisfied with that, then I wouldn't have that urge to push. So I'm acutely aware of the, the enormity of getting to a final. I think we, we succeeded as a program. There's only four teams in our history that have ever made the gold medal match, one of that have won it. I think the two teams that played in that were the two teams that needed to be there. And I think it wouldn't have been right if we hadn't have played them, say they got knocked out and we played another team. I think whoever was going to win that gold medal, either us or Belgium, needed to go through the other team because it is so close. It's back and forwards. We beat them, they beat us. And you could see it goes right down to the wire. We didn't lose in actual time. We lost in shootouts. So there's something in that that we need to figure out in terms of being better at shootouts or how do we in those crunch time moments when the pressure's on, keep doing what we've done all tournament. Because I think in the last probably 10 minutes, although we started to run over the top, we probably went away from what was working for us so well in terms of our game plan. So how we can make sure in those moments, experience, you get through those moments. We're now better off for that. We'll be better for it if we choose to be. Um, so yeah, you know, you, you're playing in an Olympic final. It's the biggest thing. It's, you, you're literally that close to like living your dream. But, you know, I'm proud. I'm, I'm stoked that, you know, I've probably been to about 10 different schools. I've been speaking to that many people and different podcasts and radio stations and, you know, showing like, I reckon the amount of hands that have been on that medal. That's I'm really proud of. And that connection to people and that side of it, super proud of. But it's just this for me personally. I'm like, nah, fuck, man, I want that gold medal. <laughs> so for for little TJ who had this mission um, since a young age, coming out of South Australia, moving to Perth, etc., is it one one goal has been accomplished going to the Olympics? And I mean, <laughs> pretty close. But what's uh, not quite mission accomplished, or mission accomplished, and on to the next one. Good question. Uh, job's not done. Mission's not done. Um, I would say that individually, like, that was a good good news story and it's a good thing for people to watch. I'm also aware of that. So that mission for me to be able to stay true to myself through all those hardships through 31 years of life and hockey like I look, you know, I probably don't spend that much time except for this moment right now. Yeah, I'll probably look back and say, yeah, I can be fucking proud of myself because I stayed true to myself and I did it how I think I should do it. Um, but the ultimate prize is winning a gold medal. And the only other bit I would say about that is I don't, I don't want, like, I still have this burning fucking feeling inside of me that I should have been picked in that original team. So there's that piece of me as well. Like, there's a point to prove, and I have a point to prove. And as long as I keep that chip and I'm hungry, then I'll keep, you know, making the people around me walk taller and stand taller, and I'll keep being me and pushing people to be better and myself to be better. So job awesome. not done. Awesome answer. Uh, final kind of section here. After the Olympic Games, there's um, there's usually a bit of buzz, especially in the media, around the impact that it has on on athletes coming back and the little lull period. Um, it was probably exacerbated this time by the two weeks 
mandatory isolation um, in hotel quarantine that Aussie athletes had to endure. Um, can you tell us whether it's true? How do you feel coming out the back of a, an Olympic campaign? And um, yeah, I would say first on the quarantine bit. If anyone's complaining about it, then you should check yourself. You just went to Olympic Games and you're one of very few people in the world that's actually allowed to travel and have a bit of freedom. So check yourself very quickly. Um, we knew what we signed up for. We knew we were sitting in a hotel quarantine for two weeks after. I didn't mind it. Like two weeks to just slow down and fizz out. Normally when you get back from a tour, you um, it's almost like a post-tournament hangover where you're, everyone else in your day-to-day life that is around you when you're kind of operating um, is going about their business and you kind of come back in and you've got phone calls and emails and messages and life and all you want to do is just chill out before you know it, you're back into training. So having that two weeks to just kind of level out, slow down, um, spend a bit of time just lying on my bum, you know, answering emails, making phone calls, that was really good. Maybe the last two days I was ready to get out, but... You know, for me, just you can always put something in perspective, mate. <laughs> for sure. And afterwards, um, you had to go back into your club season, and um, yeah, as you say, life life keeps going. It's it's pretty. Um, it it doesn't really pay pay heed or regard to the fact that you've just done something incredible, or for the six months that have been put in prior to that. Um, how was it back? Acclimatizing to normal life. Yeah, oh, it was like we slowed down and then as soon as we got out, it all sped up again for the next four weeks of just plenty of catch-ups, plenty of beers, plenty of uh, socialising. You know, everyone wants a piece here. You know, I think there's also that responsibility that we have as the kookaburras is giving back to our community. So, you know, I made an effort whenever I was asked to go and give back to schools or go and see people or whatever it was, chat to them, guest speak, whatever it may be. So I, I've... You know, knowing that in the next four, like the first few, three, four weeks out, like I was, you know, making an effort to do all those things. Going back and playing club hockey was probably a bit harder than what I thought um, in regards to my motivation. Um, I think I played four games to one, the, the first game, the first game out of quarantine, I was a full turkey. I couldn't even <laughs> run <laughs> and didn't really get out of second gear, to be honest. I kind of just, Trapped a few, put a few over the top of the net, didn't score any goals. Um, but it was a bit of a dead rubber game, so it was a good game to get back into. And then I kind of pulled it together a little bit and then had another bad game and then had another good game. So I was kind of a bit just like, you know, there participating and trying to just do the right thing for my club, who was given so much to me. But, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to not have a stick in my hand now. Beautiful. And uh, the final question you spoke about um the mission you're still on still on that path um with regard to your hockey but what's next a for the kookaburras and b for yourself outside of hockey yeah nice um i've been getting stuck into the backyard into the house we're going to do some renovations on the house so i've been enjoying that um that's been quite fun and the work boots were cleaned off by candace when i got home so she's pretty ready for me to start ripping that <laughs> But also got some motivation to do it now as well. Like it's not something that I've, I know I've got to do. It's just something that I can enjoy doing. Um, potentially a few little opportunities in terms of work and some career stuff that I'm chasing up at the moment. So that's um, 
that's quite fun. Um, and then in terms of hockey, uh, oh, I'm also on the push bike, which is loving that. That's good fun. Feeding the chooks. Um, and then in terms of hockey, look, for me, it, it's never been just about winning a gold medal. It's like it's it's about playing hockey for Australia. It's about being the kookaburra and it's everything that entails. So for us, we talk about being truly the world's greatest hockey team. And so I don't think we can call ourselves truly the greatest hockey team if we win an Olympic gold medal and then lose everything else. For me, it's sustained success. It's continually getting better, growing our brand as a team, what we're about. Um, it's about winning the next one, which is Com Games. It's about winning the World Cup. It's about winning the Olympic Games. It's about and everything in between and doing it the right way, doing it with a bunch of mates you like being around. Um, so for me, that's that's what's next. It's to reset, regroup and um, go again. Yeah. While I still love it, I may as well keep doing it. Awesome. Mate, you're a weapon. Thanks for hanging out. Um, congratulations on your silver and the tournament you played. That's a, that's a bucket load of goals and you'll remember that for a long time, including one in the gold medal. Unbelievable. Um, thanks, mate. Thanks for catching up. That's it for another episode of The Help Side. Special thanks to my production team of David Moore and Tim Collier, plus countless others working behind the scenes to get this to you. You're the real MVPs. Again, if you're liking the show, please like, subscribe, you know the drill, and get in touch with us via our socials. We would love to hear from you. Anyway, that's all, folks. See you next week.